Welcome to As Much Protein as an Egg, Episode 9. I got chapters 15 and 16 for you today. Maybe even a little more. Check it out. Carlos is back with the narration, and I've got even some music for you. Theme wise, that is. You know, just a little. Here it is. It's your boy Seth Harwood bringing you as much protein as an egg back in effect. SethHarwood.com, RightWithSeth.com, and of course, Patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, we're getting a little surreal around here. That's how things are in the 2020. Barbara Walters, the Dub Dub interview. Have you guys heard that uh, Black Thought freestyle that he did on YouTube with Funkmaster Flex? Oh my God. I'll put a URL link in the thing. I got a lot to talk about. Uh, a new endeavor that I'm putting together with some of my writing students. It is a collection of fiction called Ground. Uh, it'll be out in the next month or two. I'll have a website for you, much more to talk about, and let's get right into the content with Carlos Mendoza reading from As Much Protein as an Egg. No more talking, just bring it on. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can leave a five-star review on iTunes, or head over to patreon.com slash Seth Harwood and join the team there. We've got a new reward system, and I'll explain more about that after the episode. Chapter 15 In the stairwell, Billy Pilgrim could hear crying coming from the other apartments in the building. As he made his way up the flight of stairs, he saw apartment doors gaping open and heard the same thing coming from all of them, reporters talking about the tragedy and the horror of the day's events. They were saying something now about a third plane, but Billy couldn't understand how that connected. It was now 9.47 a.m. American Airlines Flight 77 had crash-landed into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. ten minutes earlier. Now the Pentagon was smoking. Billy heard crying in the halls. He could hear people shouting. They sounded like they were shouting at their phones, whether they were shouting for their loved ones and asking if they were okay, or shouting at their phones for not working, he couldn't tell. It sounded like some of each. Inside each open doorway he passed, Billy saw the glow of a television set illuminating an apartment's hall. On the fourth floor, there was a young man standing in his doorway wearing a bathrobe. He wore a dirty white undershirt of the tank top variety and pajama bottoms. His feet were bare. His robe hung open. His head appeared to have been shaved of all its hair. He looked like a young Telly Savalas. Billy Pilgrim would have paid good money to have hair when he was this man's age. Now, here was a person who had actually shaved his head bald on purpose? Billy couldn't believe it. This young man was actually an unemployed political science major from Boston. His name was Tony Vitelli. Holy Jesus, he said when he saw Billy Pilgrim. Where did you come from? Billy didn't answer. Telling Vitelli he was unstuck in time and from the past would only make matters worse. Instead, he said where he was going. To the roof! He pointed up the last flight of stairs. Above him, he could see the open door to the roof and blue skies beyond. 
Billy ran up the final flight of stairs. This was one of the first times he had ever run in his life. McGee basically made him do it, but Billy was also leaning hard on his free will. He chose to do it, too. Out on the roof, he emerged onto a stage of black tarmac. This is what roofs were made of all across New York City. They were flat roofs, most of them connected to the roofs of other buildings by the block. He saw short chimneys sticking up from the roofs of his building and of many others. It took Billy a few seconds to get his bearings, but then he turned all the way around and there were the towers, at the bottom of Manhattan, off to the right of the Statue of Liberty. The statue herself was still fine. She stood tall, holding her torch up for all to see. Billy wondered if it would be harder to pilot a plane into a skyscraper or the Statue of Liberty. It didn't matter, he knew, but the thought struck him for just a moment before he wiped it out of his mind. Even at extreme moments like these, a person's mind could turn to irrelevant, meaningless things. Tony Vitelli, the young bald man in the bathrobe, for instance, was currently thinking about lottery tickets as he followed Billy up the stairs to the roof. He wanted to know if they would still have the Powerball drawing that he had a ticket for. He had no job prospects. Nobody had any interest in hiring him. If his father hadn't died 17 months earlier, he would not have had the money to live in New York City. He was living off his father's life insurance. He liked to smoke weed and shave his head and chase girls. Vitelli was about to come out onto the roof and burn his feet on the tarmac. It was hot already, even at 9.52 a.m. To the right of the statue, Billy could see actual smoke rising up into the air and the actual towers themselves burning. To say he had never seen anything like it would do a tremendous injustice to all the times he had pictured the events of February 13th and 14th, 1945 in his mind. These were the days of the Dresden firebombing by the Allied forces in World War II. Billy had pictured a plume of smoke as wide as all of Lower Manhattan floating up into the sky, and a tornado of fire sweeping across Dresden, sucking up men, women, and children, pulling them into it and burning them down to just bones. He had pictured all of this because he had been there. He had survived the firebombing and come out into the streets of Dresden to see the destruction mere hours later. It had looked like he had walked out onto the face of the moon. Nothing but minerals. The rocks left behind had been swept into curves. Black smoke filled the sky and the sun shone through a tiny pinprick. Along with a few others, Billy had dug through the Dresden rubble to look for survivors. Instead, he found hidden graves of charred bodies too numerous to pull out and bury properly. Now he asked himself why his creator had brought him here to witness more atrocities. He wanted to know what this was supposed to accomplish. Why couldn't he be back upstate in Ilium drinking lemonade? He wanted to know. He also realized that wherever he was and whatever he was doing wasn't something he could argue. It wouldn't change. It just was. He had learned this from the Tralfamadorians. Tony Vitelli had seen plenty of things like these burning skyscrapers, but they were all in movies. Vitelli had lived through more years of high-tech, fancy special effects than Billy Pilgrim had. These were really some effects. He had seen horrible things happen on gigantic screens in movie theaters. He had seen the White House explode. Countless buildings had burned before his eyes. He had seen these movies on DVDs, watching them on his giant television set. Before coming up onto the roof, watching the towers burn on his television set was a whole lot like watching a movie. This was the main thing that Vitelli had spent most of the morning thinking. But now he was on the roof, and he could see the actual towers. These towers he had seen 
time and time again holding themselves over so many different scenes from his life in settings across Brooklyn and Manhattan, once even from New Jersey. He saw the actual towers burn. Here's when the most horrible thing of the day started to happen. Billy Pilgrim and Tony Vitelli and a few others had been standing on the side of the roof closest to Manhattan for exactly seven minutes, seven minutes since Vitelli had come onto the roof. This was when the South Tower of the World Trade Center started to collapse. Billy could hear screams from the Brooklyn streets below and from apartment living rooms all around. He heard a sound a lot like distant thunder, which he imagined to be coming from the building itself as it fell under its own weight and started to crumble. Billy Pilgrim really thought he was hearing the sound of the building pieces breaking and giving way as its final struts and strengths and girders collapsed. Smoke began to rise up from the ground around the tower. Billy saw it as the tower disappeared below the height of the other buildings of Lower Manhattan. When the tower was gone, the smoke was higher than the buildings. Now, in addition to the long plumes of smoke that stretched up into the sky, a gray, ugly cloud rose up over the buildings. Billy saw it. Tony Vitelli fell to his knees when this happened. He was not an emotional person and had never been prone to prior lapses of knee strength, but in this case his knees literally buckled. He fell to the tarmac. His pajama pants would be dirty. This was not what worried Tony Vitelli. What worried Tony Vitelli was that if he'd been standing closer to the edge of the roof, he might have fallen off. The thought that stuck itself in the craw of Tony Vitelli's mind was that this wasn't television and that he had never seen anything like this. He couldn't actually believe it was real. Nothing like this had ever happened before his eyes in his lifetime. Knowing just how big those towers were made his mind stop itself in his tracks. It couldn't compute that this vision could be real. He was working hard to help himself understand that this was not a special effect on his television. This had nothing to do with his habitual use of marijuana. Vitelli put his hands down on the roof so he was on all fours. He did this for the comfort and the stability of the ground, the roof in this case. For a moment or several, he thought he felt a tremor passing through the building. He felt as if he could feel his own building shake as a result of the falling of the South Tower those miles away in Lower Manhattan. Whether Billy Pilgrim actually heard the sound of the tower falling, or if Tony Vitelli actually felt the tremor pass through his building, we'll never know. Neither will they. Perhaps it doesn't matter. As long as they think they heard and felt this, that's a part of their experience, and how they will remember this fateful day. But why did Billy Pilgrim appear on this day so far into his future? Why now, and for what purpose, was he to experience these terrible events? What if he had been in Manhattan, or Lower Manhattan? What if he had appeared there and then? We'll never know, will we? There's more to Billy Pilgrim's story on this day, but we're going to have to wait, patiently, for Bainbridge McGee to get back to his computer and write it. And so on. He needed a break. Bainbridge McGee had to wait patiently to find out what more would happen, too. McGee pushed his chair back from the computer and stretched. His back hurt. Something had happened to his lower right back area in the night. He wasn't sure what it was, and since Sandy hadn't spent the night, he couldn't blame it on her. Sometimes he could get a pain in his back from a bad golf swing, or sometimes he could get it from sexual intercourse. In either case, the pain was something he considered a reasonable risk. He was willing to accept the times when he had this kind of back pain for the joy that he got from doing those two things when he did not. 
By now he knew the pain would go away in a day or two. He had been experiencing this kind of pain event for years. McGee cracked his neck and stretched his arms. It was getting on towards lunchtime, but he didn't really care. When he was writing like this, lunch could wait. Lunch could piss off, actually, because he thought he was writing something important. Sure, it was a little weird that the main character of his book was a shared character from a book by Kurt Vonnegut, but that was okay with him. In fact, it was part of McGee's new plan. If he could complete a draft of this masterpiece before he flew to San Francisco to meet with the award committee, he'd be able to present the book in all its glory to the other members, even the dreaded Aldo Calcagno, as the final piece of his Vonnegut argument. He planned to present them with the book and say this, Look! Look at this masterpiece of a novel! This was inspired by the works of Kurt Vonnegut. If he could inspire something this great, then isn't he necessarily worthy of this most prestigious award? What would I have ever known about Billy Pilgrim and the firebombing of Dresden without Slaughterhouse-Five? Isn't he the best choice? Isn't he? That's what McGee would say. This was the crux of McGee's final argument for Kurt Vonnegut. He liked to think of that as his F-A-K-V, or his fave for short. This seemed especially great because he saw a lot of the kids on Facebook saying that this thing or that thing was their fave. McGee wanted to make sure that Vonnegut was this year's committee's fave author. And this was his plan. Chapter 16 Let's get back to our two young lovebirds in San Francisco for a moment, shall we? For Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko, it was now February 2014 as well. They, too, had gone through a fine few months. On New Year's Eve, they had gone to the famous Harry Denton's Starlight Room in San Francisco at the top of the Sir Francis Drake Hotel. They went with a few friends, four from each of their friend circles to be exact, and the night was an awesome success. Emily's friends liked Kellogg's friends and vice versa, and Kellogg had kissed Emily in just the right way at just the right time at the stroke of midnight. Later on that night, Emily found herself very drunk and telling Artemis Kellogg that she loved him. This surprised him more than a little and actually scared him a bit. He felt like his life was turning into something he could really want it to be, and this scared him. Strange, isn't it? Why this scared him had no good explanation, but it was something he could make go away by taking a pill or two. Truth was, he was already taking that combination of two pills once daily, as prescribed by his psychiatrist, and it was having a marvelous effect. It enabled him to proceed with this life that he wanted to lead, even if leading it occasionally scared him. What scared him the most about it was this, that it might contain more than a touch of what I like to call awesomeness. A small, evil, chemically deprived part of the back of his brain sometimes liked to ask, what if we don't deserve this? Kellogg tried not to listen to this part of his brain, but sometimes it just spoke up. At times, he couldn't avoid hearing it. Then the problem was this. He wondered if the voice was right. Artemis Kellogg had a psychiatrist named Harold. Harold was a doctor, really, but he didn't make you call him doctor or anything like that. He was cool. He was also an excellent psychiatrist and had played a great role in Kellogg's life. For a while, when Kellogg had been going through a financial rough patch, Harold had even seen him for their weekly visits for free. 
This was a really remarkable thing for a psychiatrist to do. On top of that, Harold was a very special kind of psychiatrist because he believed in talking. Talking was great to do in combination with taking pills, he said. For Kellogg, this sure had a good effect. Most psychiatrists didn't like to talk. They just wanted to give out pills and let people go take them. They thought it was all only about the chemicals. Since they had worked so hard to become doctors, they figured they could just pass out pills and go home. Go about your business, they said. Just take these while you're going about it. They believed it was all about the chemicals, just the chemicals in people's brains. Harold knew something special. The chemicals in people's brains were only part of the story. The rest of the story was their programming, and their programming could only be rewired through talking. So talking is what Harold did with Artemis Kellogg, along with the pills. These worked together. After New Year's Eve, Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko moved in together. Yes, this seems fast, but they were young, sort of, and in love, or so they told each other, and San Francisco is really a very expensive city to live in by yourself. They moved in together for three reasons. One, they believed that they loved one another. We'll have to see about how that turns out. Two, they wanted to share on rent by cohabitating. Emily's place was perfect for the both of them, and she really could use some help with the money end of things. Already, even by this time, Eat24.com was having problems making ends meet. They had to cut back Emily Plinko's hours. As we've said before, Eat24.com was not long for this world. Three, the third reason Emily and Kellogg moved in together was this. Artemis Kellogg had a roommate who was a dick. Talk about wasting time on Facebook or on Match.com. What Kellogg's roommate did was even worse. He was a full-blown gamer. He had special yellow-tinted glasses for gamers to allow him to spend more time staring at his screen and everything. He spent most of every night conquering worlds that didn't exist. The more he did this, the less he understood or cared to relate to people. This was what made him a dick. Partly, he really didn't care, and partly, he had lost all sense of how to relate to people in the real world. The real world was the place we all lived and walked around. Sisyphus Cafe was in the real world. Despite what many people thought, the real world was not just a TV show. In truth, only the first season of MTV's The Real World approached anything even remotely similar to real, and this was due largely to the hilarity of... Eric from the Grinds attempt to make himself star-worthy. Kevin's role of angry black man being new and not yet cliché in the world of reality television, and the fact that they actually threw a second black person into the house to balance the scales a little. You remember Heather B., right? She was a rapper of the memorable tracks I Get Wreck and All Glocks Down, insert note. I would not have remembered the names of these songs without looking on Wikipedia. Also, it was funny to see the girl from Alabama trying to live in New York City. Kellogg's roommate was named Myers, Randolph Myers. He liked to say his name like that. First the last name, then the last, and first together. He thought it made him sound like James Bond. It didn't. It made him sound like a dick. Kellogg had found Myers in the spare room in his apartment on Craigslist, a place on the Internet where people listed everything. 
Artemis Kellogg wasn't all that bothered by Myers. He thought Myers was kind of funny. Once he and Emily started getting close, and she came by his apartment a few times to visit, they were able to make a lot of jokes about Myers. It wasn't fair to Myers, but Kellogg had heard the best way to keep a beautiful woman happy was to make her laugh, so he took every opportunity to do so. One thing about Myers that they didn't laugh at was this. One beautiful, sunny Saturday in San Francisco, they stopped by Kellogg's apartment to pick up his bike. Myers was home with all the shades drawn and the lights off. He was watching a cartoon on the TV. You wouldn't believe the size of Myers' TV. It was an absolute marvel. You couldn't find one bigger that didn't involve a projector. This one was flat, high definition, and big as a wall. To say it was something to be amazed by is an understatement. It made Bainbridge McGee's TV look like the TV of an old person. Anyway, Emily and Kellogg thought it was sad that Myers was inside on this beautiful day. They asked him if he wanted to come outside with them, and he said no. He had a beautiful dog, too. The dog was lithe and spry and could run for hours. The dog was inside with him on the sunny afternoon. They were both on the couch, Myers and his dog. It was really very sad. And so on. All of this led Emily and Kellogg to move in together. Maybe it was premature. Maybe they would have a few speed bumps along the way. Who doesn't? Growing pains, some might call them. They sure had a lot more sexual intercourse when they weren't living together, they found out. This was because they had the need to go out on dates. Dates were a good prelude to sexual intercourse. Man, did that make them fun. A lot of Emily and Kellogg's dates also involved drinking, which was what Bainbridge McGee thought of when he thought about going on a bender. Drinking also made dates fun. Know what else? Drinking could also lead to sexual intercourse. You guessed it. Grimace Kellogg still worked at the Waldorf School, but being this close to Emily Plinko, his muse had really upped his writing production. At night, she would read his new work and encourage him. He had finished a story about the polo player at Daphne College who studied with Kurt Vonnegut. What happened in the story was this. Basically, she got drunk a lot that first year in college and spent a lot of her not-drunk time playing water polo. As a result, she was usually very tired when it was her time to write or to meet one-on-one -on -one with the great Vonnegut. She didn't show him much that impressed him or give them much to discuss, and all the older girls who didn't get the chance to work one-on-one -on -one with the great Vonnegut came to hate her all the more. They gave her the worst stink eyes on the quad. Once, at the end of a story, Vonnegut held up the two pages the girl had given him to read and said, Is this all? He said this after having read them, so it wasn't just about the length. There was really nothing interesting at all on the pages. But what could Vonnegut really expect when he had chosen to teach young girls creative writing? They were just kids, these girls. When he chose to put her in the class, he had let a few titillating lines from her sordid journals convince him which was not quite thinking with the full capacity of his genius. Go figure. Nobody was perfect. Remember what I said before about writers disappointing people in real life? And so on. The truth was, Vonnegut was just doing the teaching job for the money, which he needed because he had seven children of his own. That amounted to a lot of college tuition he was responsible for, especially for a writer. At least the college girls didn't come into his office and start farting.
so Artemis Kellogg was doing well with the help of his muse. I'm sure you're eager to know more about that. But listen, I can hear you. I know what you're really thinking. You feel mad that Bainbridge McGee kind of left you with a cliffhanger when he stopped writing The Falling People with Billy Pilgrim up on that roof. You want to know what happened next. I'm here for you, dear reader. And we're both lucky. Here's why. Bainbridge McGee was feeling very good about his novel, his latest masterpiece, as he liked to think of it. He felt like he was hot, or on a roll, or in the zone, as Big Win liked to say when he was making shots. McGee was back at his desk already. He was banging on the keys. Let's pop down to La Quinta and see what he wrote. Yeah, there we go. So, like I said, please support by leaving a five-star review on iTunes, telling your friends about this podcast, or pledging some dollars on patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. The new pledging system over there is that you get to listen, you get all the goods, and you choose what level of support you want. One dollar, three dollars, and on up from there. Whatever you like. This episode is in the world of Billy Pilgrim and September 11th, 9-11-01. That's how this whole thing got started. I was doing that podcast at the beginning of Corona COVID-19 about the drummer. Um, It was called Tuesday, and it was about uh, September 11th. And then I started thinking about this book and how it touches on September 11th. And um, we've gone so far beyond what felt like the significance of September 11th to me uh, in my 2001 world with what's going on with Corona and uh, Black Lives Matter. I was listening to a podcast today called On Being uh, with Robin D'Angelo talking about how there's actually two pandemics going on. There's the white supremacy pandemic of inequality recognition and reconciliation, perhaps, uh, in our country currently, and the pandemic of COVID. And there was a man on there talking about how COVID-1619 is what's been affecting his body and the bodies of black people who he knows and putting them in a disadvantaged position to survive and cope with COVID-19, 2019. So there's a lot going on here. And initially my idea was to share as much protein as an egg for the way that it was connecting with a moment in my life in American history where we really had to push that pause button. Uh, And I feel like in 2019, 2020, sorry, we pushed that pause button maybe for as long as we could. Maybe some of us couldn't push it for a certain amount. We pushed it for as long as some people could. And some of us could have pushed it longer. And some of us think that If we had pushed the pause button and stayed in lockdown for longer, we would be safer now and doing better at handling COVID-19. 
but there's a huge range of opinions on this matter. It breaks down along political lines. It's now political and not scientific. And what I thought at the beginning of all this about, oh, here's a way that I was talking about 9-11 with this, as much protein as an egg, now it's just a whole other different thing. Billy Pilgrim in New York City on September 11th, 2001, touches on the 9-11 stuff, and here in COVID, the future will have to see what I and others will write about what we're dealing with now, which I think would be I think is interesting to think of as the dual pandemics of race and COVID in our society right now. Heavy shit. Oh man, heavy, heavy shit. And I'll include a link to the Black Thought uh, freestyle on Funk Flex in the morning. It's ten plus minutes long. It's very awesome. I highly suggest you listen and watch. Uh, And I wanted to tell you more about Ground Fiction uh, and the website, which is in process, called groundfiction.com. That's the website. We're working on Ground Fiction, which is an anthology of creative writing, short stories, and excerpts from novels by writers who I've been working with via my private workshops and um, coaching, one-on-one coaching. Uh, And so I hope that you'll check those out. Or when it comes, I hope that you'll check it out. I'll definitely will have some podcast content from Ground, and I'll be putting it into this feed for you to listen to. Uh, One of my clients, Lynn B. Miller, is going to be recording some chapters soon for you to check out. And I think it's just going to be a lot of fun to sort of open up the space to some new fiction, uh, work from writers who I've been working with, uh, very different from what I did with Crime Wave, but um, a whole new endeavor and something that I've been really involved in, uh, collecting, curating, helping to do editing on the pieces and putting together this anthology. It's really a journal, but this is the first issue. Uh, So we're kind of calling it an anthology of the best of what these writers, 16 of them, have put together so far. Um, And I'll be excited to share it with you. The ebook will be out in September, as will the print edition. And we'll be doing some Zoom events around readings and celebrations of of its release. So head over to groundfiction.com. And if you want to get on the email list for that, let me know. If you want some uh, attention as far as your writing uh, in the way of assignments that I would read and respond to, uh, one-on-one coaching or potentially some workshop, please drop an email. I would love to hear from you and talk about those possibilities. Really liked hearing from you guys with the FART emails. Thank you very much for sending those, for not putting in any audio files of actual farting, and for just all in all being awesome folks. We have uh, one new supporter on Patreon recently. His name is Mike James. Mike, did you play basketball for University of Maryland back in the day? Just, Just wondering, throwing that out there. Also, Shauna Ryan is uh 
pledging on Patreon. Rich W is back. Chris Pragman, John Wheeler, Tish Greer. Really like having you guys around. Uh, love your support. Appreciate your listening. And I hope you guys have a great one. I'll be back soon with more episodes. Thanks again to Carlos for recording these. And we'll be back shortly with more. This is a presentation from your boy, Seth Harwood. That's right. S-E-T-H-H-A-R-W-O-O-D. Coming to you here from Massachusetts, East Hampton, during the Corona COVID 2020. That's right, your boy, kicking it to you live and direct, fresh off the mic. SethHarwood.com, Patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. Patreon, all the places. Check it out. Keep it locked. You're listening to Seth Harwood. Subscribe today at patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. What if Michael Jordan played one secret pickup game in summer 1996 to pay off a debt so big it would get him banned from the NBA for life? What if that game was played on a private court in Malta and Jordan's parting gift for the king was a jewel-encrusted pair of Jordan 11s, a pair of kicks so special and rare that they could be worth millions if they actually exist. Follow Jack Palms on a hunt from San Francisco to Hawaii and back across the country to New York City as he tracks the only person who knows the truth about these sneakers, a felon who just skipped his bond to chase them. The mythical pair of sneakers that can only go by one name. In the vein of Elmore Leonard and Carl Hyacin, Seth Harwood presents his next novel, The Maltese Jordans. Subscribe today at patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. Yeah, about to give you what you need, you Check it out now. It's the type of